political power is incredibly, um, you know, seductive. And the reality is whoever can own it um, will do oftentimes whatever it takes to capture it. And I don't think we should forget that. Hello and welcome to another edition of the MarkCast. I am Mark Jorgensen and I'm the host and creator of this podcast. Today we have a very special show. I interviewed Laura Brown. She is the director of the political management program at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. She's also a professor of political science and she's a very experienced political activist. She's worked on campaigns in the 1980s, 1990s, and into the 2000s um, uh, as an activist role, volunteering and working on several campaigns and uh, as a fundraiser. Uh, Until in the 2008 election, she decided to dedicate herself to being a political analyst, uh, no longer taking on partisan kind of activist roles uh, for parties. So she took a step back from the political side of things and is dedicated to doing very uh, objective analysis of the political world. So we had a fascinating discussion. It went pretty long. I found it very insightful into actually figuring out, you know, how do you get people to write big checks uh, for campaigns? You know, like she spent a number of years working on development and fundraising for campaigns, and she was very successful at doing that. Uh, Also, just, you know, in comparing, you know, Hollywood with D.C., which I did in my first show with my conversation with Jared Whitley, where we talked about the comparisons between Hollywood and D.C. and messages and movies, um, she kind of takes that a step further and kind of says that the way, the things you have to do to make a movie in Hollywood are actually very similar to the things you have to do to get a bill passed in Washington, D.C., you know, in Congress. Taking those kind of two comparisons and kind of digging in a little deeper into this whole system of politics, um, if you're even a little bit interested in politics, I think you'll uh, find this episode very interesting. Um, elections did you work on actually? I'm looking around your office and how many elections did you work on? Um, Well, I started working in politics really as an undergraduate um, college student. So the first election I volunteered on and worked on was the Michael Dukakis presidential uh, race in 1988. And then pretty much every two years. You were like a volunteer, like intern at that point? Yeah. So I was 18, I was in California. Um, and, you know, went in, made phone calls, stuffed envelopes, which is what we did back in those days. And then pretty much every election cycle, mm-hmm. uh, I worked on as a volunteer for candidates up until the 95, 96 cycle, um, where then I was no longer a volunteer and I was a paid political fundraiser. So I had clients uh, who were state legislators state legislators who were running uh, for re-election. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much all in California, right? All, all in California. All in California, so you pretty well tapped into the whole California. And California basically turned blue in 92, right? So it was a pretty good time yes. to be a Democrat in California. It was a very good time. time. I right? mean, the place where I would say that I really you know, got much more experience, where I was actually a formal intern, 
uh, was in the 1992 cycle, um, I volunteered as an intern for Dianne Feinstein, who was running for senator. Uh, and it was an exciting year because obviously Bill Clinton was on the ticket. Barbara Boxer was also running for Senate that year, mm -hmm. and it was ostensibly what they called the year of the woman. You ended up working on the Clinton uh, administration, right? Um, I did. It was one it was of your first all, jobs, basically? Well, college, no. It, it's, it's sort of an interesting um, situation of how this happened. After I did all this political fundraising in the 95-96 cycle, was very active in Bill Clinton's re-elect as a volunteer. Okay. So I, I was a member of what they called the saxophone club back then, okay. because Bill Clinton played the saxophone. Of course, yeah, that was one. Right. The saxophone club was actually a, a an official club within the, the DNC mm -hmm. that raised money among young professionals to support the president's re-elect. Okay. So, so you went around to like different groups? Well, no, actually we held, um, as you can see in my office, we held events um, with the president um, that were DNC fundraisers. Oh, okay. And okay. they were usually the late night events that happened in the major cities all across the country after the president would go on a fundraising trip. So he would go right to Los Angeles and, and do a massive fundraising trip. And he would have essentially a high donor event Mm -hmm. um, that would happen basically from, you know, six uh, to eight. Right, and then right, right. he would maybe have like a small gathering with even higher dollar donors. Okay, so working his way up. From, from okay. like, you know, eight to ten. Okay. And then what would happen is he would come over to the House of Blues where mm -hmm. we, we would have 1,500 young professionals who had all contributed $250 to the DNC mm -hmm. and to the president's reelect. Oh. He would, as that picture shows, be on stage with um, people like Jim Belushi and Dan Aykroyd and kind of wow. getting involved in the um, you know Blues Brothers thing at the House of Blues. Okay. We would have musicians and entertainment and all of the young professionals were really active and engaged with the saxophone club. So, and, so wait, that, was, that final portion was the saxophone club? It was, right. well, and it was so much fun because this was the first um, real DNC effort at low dollar uh, fundraising. Uh, right, right. So other than direct mail, because we have to remember, this is all pre-internet. Right. So pre-internet, the DNC was focused on, you know, high-level donors, people who could write a, a, at least a thousand-dollar check mm -hmm. and above. And then, and this is also all pre-bipartisan campaign finance reform act of 2002, okay. right? So we're operating under FEC guidelines. Um, nobody had really done low-dollar fundraising except for direct mail solicitation. Okay. Right. And we created this group. Um, within the DNC, which was young professionals, $250 a year, you get to go to one event with the president. And everybody had a great time. It was a lot of fun. When Gore ran for office, they changed the name. In 2000. In 2000. Right. Okay. It right. became Gornet. Um, okay. But the interesting part is, is that it never really translated. So the energy kind of tapered off, or it just, it just didn't, Gore just didn't really fit with the mold or yes, whatever? Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, Gore didn't, um, I think, really commit the time or the energy, so. Okay, and then, so after that, you somehow parlayed a position. Well, yeah, so what, what happened then yeah. later, I, 
I had essentially taken a leave of absence from my PhD okay. to work in politics at 96. Which you were working on at University year. of California. At UCLA. UCLA, right. Okay. And I then basically went back to doing my PhD in January of 1997. Okay. I knew that I couldn't keep working as a political fundraiser because it's just too much time. Right. Uh, so I went and got a job at UCLA in the development office and I did fundraising for the university while I worked on my PhD. Okay, wow. Um, okay, stressful, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, development's a little more of a stressful kind of position. I mean, it's asking people for money. I mean, well, maybe well, if you have the personality that fits with it, then... I, you know, from it, my perspective, I, I okay, it's okay. so much fun. Okay. Because okay. really what you do is you get to involve people who have money right. in opportunities um, for engagement that they wouldn't necessarily have. I mean, the people who give money in politics, they can't wait to be engaged in politics. Okay. And the people who give money to universities, they feel like they're building their legacy. Right. So this is something that these people who have money are in some ways looking for meaning. Right. right? And then essentially what happened, I got to the place where I was um, all but dissertated. So in the academic world, we call this ABD. And I was ABD, and my best friend, who was then serving at the Department of Labor right. um, as a political appointee, called me up and said, you know, it's 98, there are people who are starting to leave the administration. Sure, sure. Um, you really think Bill Clinton's been a fantastic president? You should come back and serve in the administration. And I said to her, well, I'm almost done. I've probably got another year, year and a half on my... Um, on my PhD, right. and I said, I'll serve Gore. Oh. Yeah, which right. was was kind of funny looking back, but we all... Well, this was pre-Monica, right? It's no, this was list. post, but oh, we really? all, because really, Bill Clinton's approval rating was 70% during Monica. Right. So nobody believed that the president was going to be, um, you know, sort of in trouble. I mean... Right. This is sort of academic year, 1998, so it's the fall of 1998. Um, we just looked at the election. In sure. fact, Clinton did not lose seats in the 98 election in the right. House. So this was a midterm that went in favor of uh, the Democratic Party, which, by the way, that was the first time since uh, you know FDR right. that a midterm election had gone favorably for the party holding the White right. House. I mean, was it ever proven, though, like, how much Clinton actually hurt Gore? I mean, had Gore fully just embraced Clinton and said, you know, let's let bygones be guide bygones, helped him, let him, let him fundraise in 2000? I mean, are, those, are there people who argue that that would have just been the better way to go and he yes. might have just slipped across the I would have, I would have argued that. <laughs> yeah, you would have argued that. Yeah, um, yeah. And I will I also that's... tell you that if you, if you look at the political science data, um, from that election, one of the things that's interesting is every political scientist in their uh, prediction models, all their models that take in the fundamentals like the economy and the popularity of the incumbent, mm -hmm. show that Gore basically should have won the election by right, you know plus right. 55% because right. the economy was off the charts and as was um, you know Clinton's approval rating. So um, a little bit of sidetrack there, but so you yeah. said uh, you were anticipating to work on the Gore Gore campaign yes. or, or election or excuse me administration, um, but you you did end up in the White House. So well, no, this... I wasn't in the White House. I served in the Department of Education. Okay, Department of Education. But I was a political appointee, and I 
in this conversation with my best friend uh, who was in the Department of Labor. Can we say their name or? Oh, that, uh, sure. sure. This was this is actually Anna Ma. She is okay. currently a chief of staff over at HRC. Okay. Um, so okay. she's still very active in politics. She and Anna, she and I are still good friends. In fact, that's a picture, a picture of, of, of her up. So that we were all laughing on the sofa. At the top. Oh, yeah. no. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lots of so, pictures of political pictures in this office here. Um, so, so that's Anna. She was my best friend. And she said to me, yes, but let's be honest. You don't think Gore's as good a politician as you think Clinton is. Oh. You want to come work sure. for Clinton. And right, I said right. to her, well, you're 100% right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went to my dissertation advisor asked if I could take a leave of absence. For the second time. Yes. And he said, okay, but you better come back. Really? Um, so... Did you already had a pretty good rapport with your dissertation advisor? I so did. So it wasn't okay. Well, he understood and he believed, which is sort of the case of most of the academics that I've worked with, that I might not always stay in academia because they all knew that I was active in politics and um, so they wanted to support me in my efforts sure. and and I I came back in um, when I finished essentially so you were gone for a couple of years at the Department of Education I left I left Los Angeles in um, basically May of 1999 okay. um, and I got the position and started at the Department of Education in July of okay. 1999. And so you didn't have the position when you left? No. Right? Or, oh, wow. So it was a bit of a risk. There. It was a huge risk. Wow. But I, but I knew that coming back, I knew that in order to get the position, I would have to be here to get oh, it. Oh, yeah. A and lot of people don't realize that, I think. No. I try to explain that to people not in D.C. They're like, oh, why do you have to be there? And you have to be here. You have to be here yeah. because there are so many people here who have tremendous resumes and, you know, incredible kind of connections and work ethics. Right. And if you don't put yourself, I think, in the position to win the job, you're not going to get the job. Right. So this is why when I advise students, I do tell them, um, don't think that you can get the job, you know, from another state. If you are coming here and you're trying to at least get an interview, right. what you need to do is in your cover letter, you need to make it clear the date you are arriving. Mm -hmm. And then I made a couple trips back to Washington, D.C., where I spent a week in a hotel mm -hmm. um, where I, you know, sort of got everybody that I knew to help me get into the office of White House personnel to meet with those people and to try to set up as many interviews as possible. And within, like I said, five weeks um, of being here, I landed the job and I started in July of 1999. And my job was great. I was essentially the corporate liaison for the Department of Education. Okay. So I spent all my time really there developing a strategy for reaching out to corporations to engage them more in the public-private partnership grants that the Department of Education had. Um, we had a lot of, of these grants where um, basically state education agencies or local education agencies could apply to for them, mm -hmm. but in the grants there usually had to be a matching dollar amount. Right. And so my job was to try to tell corporations that they should work 
with um, the state and local education agencies to apply for these, that they should partner with them. Oh, I mean, so in, in a way that does kind of cross over with a lot of what U.S. fundraising right? had been doing before. Talking to the people, getting to write the checks. Right, because corporations give a ton of money in education, but a lot of it's very unstrategic. Right. It's sort of, oh, well, so-and-so went to this school, so we should just give right. them some money. Right. Um, and this is the late 90s, so the corporations definitely had a bit of money to throw around, for the most part, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean well, for a Fortune 500 company. company um, gives substantial amount of money every year in, in philanthropy, because if they don't, um, their tax bite is huge. Right, right, right. So most of the companies do this. The question is really, how do they engage? And this was the late 90s, and it is true that in the late 90s, corporations were even less strategic about it okay. than they are today, right? So, so a lot of low-hanging fruit, right? I yeah, mean, I mean... Money floating around, you could just... Well, and there was just a lot of... There was a lot of what I did really in this role was to help connect people. So, I mean, one of my favorite kind of examples of, of how I tried to bring together kind of people who had synergies and could really apply for a grant. In fact, BP Oil, which is sort of funny sure. now looking back, sure, um, sure. had um, you know a, a facility within Decatur, Alabama. Okay. They were already working with their local school district um, so that the school districts could send their kids over to learn science um, at their wetlands facility. The B so, BP's wetland facility. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so BP a field had this trip kind of thing. Well, or? no, I mean basically the kids went over to this BP facility to take their science classes. And they stayed there for like. They a few, would stay few there for like. They would stay there for like like you know a two hours okay, at, okay. like a two hour period each week, and okay. they would basically use the wetland facility um, to you know gather data and and all that was was funded through BP's. Um, kind of community initiative type uh, monies. One of the things that was new on the scene back then, which again is sort of funny looking back, were Palm Pilots. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they had a good few years. So yeah, they did, yeah. right? So, so I connected essentially the Palm Pilot people with these BP people because of course if the students could use essentially the Palm Pilots um, you know, as they were out in the field connecting, um, oh. like to collect the data, then these kids would be using, um, you know, technology as well, and it would improve their math skills and all this other stuff. So we put them all in connection, and then I basically suggested that they apply for one of our um, public-private partnership grants that focused on science and math education. Okay. So. So the, it was successful. It was say, successful. It was. Right? It, the truth is. It was a fantastic experience because I got to see education um, kind of at the bird's eye level. Very few people in our country see that there are 16,000 school districts and you know there are so many different educational decisions. So, so that was amazing. So you did that for a few years and I then did. Uh, Gore, Gore lost? Well, and... I actually, I left the administration um, in October of 2000, so okay. basically a month before Gore lost. Wow. Um, because UCLA's academic year was starting back up and I wanted to finish my PhD. Okay. So I took the year-long leave of absence um, from an academic standpoint. 
And I went back to Los Angeles, and um, the academic year 2000, 2001, I finished my PhD. So I finished that in June of, of 2001. How much of Hollywood do you see in DC? A lot. A lot. Yes. In what way? Well, I think what you have is you have similar um, power structures in the sense that what it takes to get a movie made is similar to what it takes to get a bill made, like pass through Congress. Right. You know, a movie is a massive collective effort, right? Mm -hmm. you, have, you have to get actors on board, you have to get um, directors, producers, camera people, you have to, you know, get the studios to finance it, then you have to get the, distri the distributors to pick up the distribution to get it out to the theaters. Right. So there's a lot of of what we call in politics veto points. Right, right. right. And as people that are not necessarily, they're making it for personal decisions perhaps. Correct. Not necessarily for the most, you know, like bottom right. line revenue positive decisions. Just Correct. whether they like the person or not or right. whatever, right? And in, and in Washington, right, you know, it, that's kind of what it takes to get a bill through Congress, right? You got to get the subcommittee chair to have take an interest in it. You got to get the um, different special interest groups um, sort of all backing it and not fighting it and then you have to make sure that um, you know the leadership in the party is interested and then gosh you've got to get it to the other side of the chamber and then hopefully to the president's desk so it's a it's usually a long big effort and and at this level what's interesting about it is even though Hollywood wants to make money and politicians desperately obviously need money neither city really cares about money. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's an interesting point. Both cities care a great deal about power right, right. and access. And so what you essentially have is two um, hierarchies that are much more structured around power than they are just around money. So you would say that because I, I, I've, I've wondered about that as money has I would argue gotten a little more into politics more recently and I would say in one of the arguments that you make in the, your book, your book Jockeying for the Presidency, Jockeying for the American Presidency, um, you argue a lot about, you know, for lack of a better term, like the, the losers, you yes. know, like the influence a losers can have, you know, our presidential aspirants, they want to become president, they don't become president, and but they still end up, you know, influencing what happens, the outcome, uh, a great deal. I would argue that now or maybe in the past 10 years or so um you know being a loser it, it's really can be kind of a good thing there's so much money you can get you know a really nice you know cable news gig or you, know, you get a lot more access to like the fundraisers and money so it's really not so much you don't fall on your face at all you fall to kind of like a pretty cushy sofa and i, I don't know is, is that something new would you say or would you think that that's not really well before so losers really became kind of the party statesman Okay. So, okay. but let's be honest, how did bipartisan campaign finance reform act passed? Right. Well, largely because of John McCain's efforts. Right. And John McCain um, is, I would argue, sort of a big presidential loser, right? right. I mean, he, lo he right. lost in 2000 and he lost in 2008. Um, and one of the reasons why it actually passed is partly because John McCain, I think, um, or I would argue, I don't yeah. have any definitive proof on this matter, sure, but sure. I would argue that both he and Russ Feingold made the calculation that they would never really earn party money support. Okay. 
So one of the things they wanted was a campaign um, reform that put money into the hands of outside groups. Right. Okay. So, oh, I, yes, yeah. I, I <laughs> so some of it I do think has to do with the personal self-interest of McCain and Feingold back yeah. in um, the 2001 time frame. So would you say, I mean, are you, things are a little bit better for losers now? Uh, or uh, people that don't succeed, I guess? Well, I, call them I, losers I mean, I just think they're, I think it's different, right? Okay. I mean, you know, back in the old days, it wasn't um, a bad thing to become a party statesman and be kind of in charge of all that patronage. You know, um, you still had a sort of cushy life mm -hmm. if you could live that role. I mean, Tom Dewey really played that role after um, he lost a couple times, you know, in the 40s. And he became kind of, you know, a hugely important figure in the Republican Party. In fact, one of the realities is that Eisenhower may not have become uh, president. He's the one who really helped bring Eisenhower into the Republican Party and get him on the ticket. Mm -hmm. Even more uh, important for our current day world, mm -hmm. um, I'm not so sure that Brown versus Board of Education would have ever, in fact, um, been decided the way it was in the Supreme Court mm -hmm. because Tom Dewey is the one who basically helped get, essentially, uh, the justice who was, who was the linchpin in that um, into, essentially, the Supreme Court decision. So, so when you look at sort of the politics of how that all worked, Tom Dewey was critical. He was a loser. He was a two-time loser. But he was a you know, three-time New York governor and uh, a major party leader. And so he got to push the party and be um, accruing of major um, influence and power afterwards. He's also the reason why Nixon was the vice president um, to Eisenhower's. So you grew up you grew up in Los Angeles, correct? Actually, San Francisco. Bay Area. San Francisco. Yeah. And what did your parents do? What was your, your mom um, was in real estate, right? My mom's in real estate, um, and my dad um, is an attorney. Okay, and uh, did they encourage you in any way in your professional life? Did they give you any nudges, or did you just kind of follow you know, what interested you? Well, I mean, my, my dad always had historical and political interests, right. and, but they were divorced when I was five. Oh, really? Um, so, you know, life became very different going back and forth between kind of my parents. Were both your parents in the same, they stayed in the same city in San Francisco? Well, or? okay, so I was raised in the East Bay with my mom, oh, and then okay. my dad lived in Marin. Um, so oh, okay. it's across the bay and across from San Francisco. But I went back and forth um, pretty much every weekend, and I lived in both places. And Where did you live? In, which, in the East Bay? What yeah, in the East Bay, it's like? called Piedmont. So Piedmont's a, a small town kind of outside Berkeley mm -hmm. and surrounded by Oakland. Uh -huh. So you lived mostly in, in Piedmont, mm -hmm. right? And That's then, where I grew up. But you go up to Marin County. Right. I mean, my dad picked me up every other weekend. And yeah. so I spent time with him in San Rafael. And then I, in the summers uh, during high school, I lived with him. And I taught sailing in Sausalito. So, so your dad had at least some influence on, you know, I guess sparking some interest in the yes. more political sphere of things. Yes. Like although, yeah. and... Although it's my understanding from both of them that my very, very first campaign was actually when I was just born. Really? Um, pretty much because my parents 
were in Southern California at the time. I was born in Southern California. My dad was working in the DA's office in Riverside. Okay. And he was campaigning um, for John Tunney, who ran for Senate in wow. 1970. Okay. And so supposedly, my first campaign was the Tunney campaign where I was in a backpack as they were knocking on doors. Wow. So those early memories got absorbed <laughs> in your mind. So campaigns were hilarious. So that was your first. Uh, interesting. And then, and then you went. So you grew up in San Francisco. Then you went to college, Los Angeles. Los Angeles. I went so to high I, school in Santa Barbara because I went to a um, private boarding school in Santa Barbara. So oh, okay. I've, I've sort of lived all over the state with the exception of San Diego. All these beautiful parts of California. Yes. Been able to live yes. In Santa Barbara. Um, and you know, but I've lived also around the country. I mean, I did a degree. In, um, at the University of Arizona. So okay. I was in Tucson, Arizona for a couple years where I volunteered on Terry Goddard's race. He ran for governor in 94. Okay. I, my last appointment was obviously at Villanova um, up in Pennsylvania. Okay. So I've lived in Pennsylvania and outside of Philly. When I was there, I was involved in Hillary in 2008, but after Hillary lost um, the primary, I decided that really I should turn my focus to academics really? and, and being an analyst of politics, not an activist. Anymore. Really? Well, that's yeah. interesting. Like, what, what was it? Did, I mean, did you have a lot you know, invested in Hillary? I did have a lot invested in Hillary. I mean, so, I maxed out to her, really? um, wow. you know, financially. But then, as I said, when she lost, there were two things that came to mind. First, I realized that if I was going to be a political scientist, I really needed to take a step back from yeah. politics. Um, but and like, so like not be as emotionally invested in it, maybe? Just, or, not, or be, just... not be active, that my okay. role is okay. now as an analyst and an academic and not an activist or okay. an advocate. And so now I, I haven't given any money since the 2008 cycle, really? um, which was a surprise to me because this is sort of funny, my first um, contribution was actually to Ronald Reagan's reelect really? in 1984. Okay. I was I was 14 years old. I wrote um, a check for my you know 20 dollar like my allowance. Wow. Um, to the the, the Reagan Bush reelect um, because my mom is more Republican and my dad is more Democratic. Really. Um, which is part of the reason why I sort of end up in this flaming moderate world. But it's also why I was very active with the DLC, um, which was the Democratic Leadership Council, and it was the more conservative, um, free market side of the Democratic Party. Yeah. And the more progressive the Democratic Party has gotten, the less I feel any relationship to it. And that's the second reason. The, the things that I am, fiscally conservative and socially liberal um, right. don't fit in either party. Right. And so as a result, it, I'm, I'm pleased, let's put it this way, that I came back to academia and that I decided to make this shift to the analyst academic role rather than stay in the activist advocate role. Because if that were the case, I would largely be dissatisfied right now because I wouldn't be pleased with the direction or the policy decisions of my party and I wouldn't be able or comfortably um, 
able to switch parties. Yeah. So I would be really without a home. You know, in your book, I, I thought that part that you did um, where you discussed the 2008 election was one of the best analysis that I've seen, um, where you talk about Obama's work on developing in all the states. He had all these caucuses. He put the right people in place. And um, it felt very, I mean, it didn't feel like distant or like dispassionate, but it felt like there was some passion behind it, but it didn't really seem, I mean, I couldn't really tell exactly which side you were on. Sure. <laughs> I mean, because I, I know you, I kind of know probably there was some, you know, some Clinton leaning or something, but, but it seemed like a very, you know, a, a very, um, a very good analysis of it that anyone can take away. And so when I'm seeing all these like reports and people are getting all critical on Hillary, you know, kind of in this lead up to the 2016 election, I'm just kind of thinking in my mind, you know, basically, I mean, you made it pretty clear. I mean, she won the 2008, um, except for like just a few other places where Obama just was able to get the caucus states and get through. But with he had a very special organization set up for those states. He and did. That, that's a very, that's an anomaly, really. The other thing he was able to win was he was able by winning the caucuses to win the perception. Right, right. And let's face it, in politics, perception becomes the reality. Right, right. So one of the things that is true is on the ground, um, when you start looking at the numbers and when you start looking at what Hillary actually did, no, she did win, but right. she didn't win the perception. Sure, sure. Right, and right. so it's a, it was a, I will tell you a very frustrating thing as somebody who backed Hillary because I kept looking at these numbers and I kept seeing, you know, if she's winning these huge states of Pennsylvania right. and Ohio and Texas, like why in the world um, isn't she the party's nominee? Right. Um, and yet Barack Obama did a fantastic job of making sure that he won Iowa and then he wins all of these other caucus states, right. which gives him a disproportionate share of the delegates, right. which then makes it look like he's winning this race, which then essentially convinces the superdelegates right. to leave her and side with him. Well, and, and a lot of the media and a lot of the broader public, you know, it just gave them a lot to write about. Do you see anything getting in the way from Hillary winning in 2016? <laughs> I, I, I well, mean, how does, how, what scenario, what's the scenario where she could lose? Either the primary nomination or the general? Well, I think, I think she is a 50-50 shot for the general. Okay. So let's just 50, put it 50, out there okay. that I think the general is absolutely a toss-up. Um, you know, the political scientists sort of understand this. That the country gets in this time for change mode. Okay. And it's very unusual uh, to elect a, one political party to a third term. Um, the bigger issue is, right, the primary, which I think she is a lock. I mean, I don't see how that that the primary essentially slips away from her. Right. The only way I think it really could is if some of this um, sort of scandal that surrounds, you know, whether it's Benghazi or the emails or the Clinton Foundation, sure, um, if those things become disconcerting enough that her support drops among Democrats. Right. And if her support in the polls drop among Democrats, then there's no doubt somebody will be the enterprising candidate to try to take advantage of that. At this stage in the game, I mean, it's almost too late. Unless someone announces, like, in the next 30 days, a strong, viable candidate in the next 30 days or maybe two months, 
I mean, you just can't get on all those ballots in all those states, right? I mean, it's pretty hard to, um, to throw I, everything together. Well, it would notice. be difficult. There's no doubt it would be difficult. Let's put it this way, right? Bill Clinton did get in in October of 91. Yeah. yeah. So can it be sure. done? Yes. Right. Um, is it exceedingly hard? Yes. Um, but do I think that I would argue that probably Labor Day is the is the cutoff point. So Labor Day. Yeah. We'll have a pretty good idea of anyone if viable. Yeah. If there's anyone else in the Democratic field that's going to jump, that would have to, you know, get in and do it. And all of that again is predicated on. So long as Hillary continues to earn eighty percent support among Democrats, right? Which is but, so on the Republican primary. Um, I read an article yesterday that said that basically the three candidates who are the serious candidates are Walker, Rubio, and Bush. I almost agreed with that. I think it was. <laughs> I think it was definitely overstated and you know, overlooking a lot of different nuances. But um, there's so many candidates. I mean, yeah. Who, do you do you think any of these guys like who's the most viable and who would be the most threat? Well, Hillary, let me say I think the think? least viable is Jeb Bush. Yeah, yeah. I, so I, I am, I am continuously surprised that the conventional wisdom in Washington keeps seeing him as, you know, a heavyweight. Yeah. I don't think he's a heavyweight, and I don't think he's a heavyweight for a lot of reasons. Partly, it has to do with the fact that the party has moved beyond where he is. Right. From an ideological position, it also has to do with the fact that he hasn't really campaigned, right. you know, since the '90s. Because his 2002 uh, reelect, I mean, that there was no real work in that. Yeah, and you make so, a point in your book. I'm so sorry to cut. No, you make a right. point in your book that, like, really, like the people that win are the people that want it, and they change their opinions and their views and their positions to win. Yeah. And Jeb Bush, so far, I mean, he barely can even say that he's even running. I mean, he doesn't right. change his positions on Common Core and these other things that really anger, mm -hmm. you know, his potential supporters or where he would have to get support. I just it just seems no way, no chance. But right. some people do believe that because he can raise a lot of money, thus he must, you know, be the likely. But he right now, so... he right now is running the Giuliani strategy right, right, in right. terms of let's wait till Florida. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not going to work. He's going to have to put up a win place or show in one of the first four states. Right. And I don't think he can do that. Yeah, so I that's agree. the problem. The problem is, is by the time Florida comes around on March 15th, he will be old news because he will not have essentially been in the top three or um, in the conversation about the winners. Yeah, I, I think he'd be satisfied enough that maybe if, as you argue in your book, he becomes one of the losers who can actually still influence the outcome and maybe influence the policy yeah. position on at least a few of these issues that he is passionate about, you yes. know, education, for example. I think he he's probably at least banking on that, that he can at least feel that he, you know, it did influence the party. And I just think the hard part for him is he is always going to be wrestling with what does he say about his brother's presidency. Yeah, and he doesn't have a good answer. He doesn't have a good answer. <laughs> so we know that. Walker and Rubio, uh, what do you think about these guys? Well, I think. Walker and Rubio are each positioned to try to capitalize on the party's desire from, for a fresh face. Right. And I think the most important thing about where the Republican Party is in this cycle uh, is that they really want to elect someone who 
allows them to say that Hillary Clinton is going back. Right. They are going forward. Right. And uh, while a lot of kind of the mainstream media would like to write off Ted Cruz, I don't think you can completely write him off. I think the the conservative, especially evangelical conservative um, aspect of the Republican Party, that faction, they have essentially lost uh, two nominees in a row in the sense right. that they were really behind people like Santorum and Gingrich. They were behind Huckabee. Um, Huckabee. Huckabee. They were, they wanted this, right? So the evangelicals haven't really won since, since W, okay, mm-hmm. since George W. Bush. So in my mind, I, I see kind of those four as much more the top four. The, the one issue that I, a lot of people don't talk about, which it seems kind of glaringly obvious to me, is that really it's been a while since we've had a president who didn't go to Harvard or Yale. Yes. And Walker didn't graduate college. Yes. You know, he had a very successful career, yes. but he didn't graduate college. I just don't see how you go from 20, you know, three, two, dec- two or three decades of someone from Harvard to Yale in a, col- in a country where, you know, almost everyone has a bachelor's degree. I mean, mm-hmm. Reagan, he didn't really, you know, he wasn't really the most, you know, academic guy. I think he went to like a, some small like, kind of college in Illinois or something like that. And, but, you know, the, back then it was the military. I think that right. was the qualifier. Now I think it's education is kind of like your qualifier. And I just don't see point. how you go from, you know, Tawakwa has no, no, you know, real pedigree that people, he can really brag about. I just don't see how you go from Harvard to Yale to not that. Well, I I, let's put it this way. I don't know that a president necessarily needs to go to Harvard or Yale. But sure, I, sure. But I do think, and I wrote a blog about this, that Walker's problem isn't that he didn't go to college. His biggest problem is he keeps well, he, saying... He, he graduated. He didn't graduate. Uh, right, right, right. 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 No, the, right. he keeps saying he's going to graduate. Oh. Okay, yeah. so he has said a number of times in his communications, um, people have said, he's going to go back and finish. In fact, um, yeah. Wisconsin started a whole sort of online program where they would accept experience for credits. Right. Um, and so one of the things when they announced this was they said, yeah, the governor's going to do this, um, yeah. you know, to finish off his degree. So I would argue that Walker's bigger problem is actually the narrative he's created around it, which is that he has every intention to do it, but he just hasn't done it yet. Yeah. And I, I personally think that he would be better off um, being very clear with the American people on, you know what, I was in college. And I was dying to actually be out there in the world and working and sure. doing the real stuff. So I did leave college, and I went and got a real job. And yeah, like yeah. I think he would be better off sort of embracing it and owning sure. it and moving forward. That's interesting. I, that's an interesting take. I so I, I mean it does make me look at those candidates as being just just very flawed in that sense. And that's kind of a, a very overly critical way to look at it perhaps. But but let me add one more thing. Sure, that. sure, sure. All presidents are flawed. Right. And they're right. usually all flawed in pretty major way. The interesting part about the race for the presidency is it's never a race of who would you like. It's more of a race of which one do you not want. Right. I mean I think we're in a very polarized time. So the problem is is that Democrats are going to vote for Hillary. Republicans are going to vote for whomever the Republican nominee is. The real question is, which side will generate more enthusiasm to turn out more of their own partisans? And which side 
will be slightly more likable for the independents to side with. So inequality, I think, is going to be an issue, a huge issue in yeah. this election. How does this play out? I mean, what, what do the candidates have to do to win the inequality debate? I mean, well, you know, the issue is, is they... that there's a right-leaning populism and there's a left-leaning populism, sure. right? So the left-leaning populism, which Hillary is um, essentially pushing and certainly Elizabeth Warren stands around, is that government needs to be more actively involved in helping to ameliorate the inequality. Mm -hmm. The right-leaning populism says, no, the problem is the government right. <laughs> in terms of what its efforts have manifested, which is essentially greater inequality. And when you look at things like Dodd-Frank or some of these other bills, right, right, you start saying, well, yeah, the system's rigged. So what we really need is the government out of the system. Well, and but isn't that basically like the Ronald Reagan argument that the, the Republican Party's been pushing for the last 30 plus years? Well, this it's is actually not... the Thomas Jefferson argument. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> further. Okay. Um, but so one of the things that is fascinating about this debate Sure. is that this is as old as the Republic. Okay, um, right. And right. So you think Republicans have a pretty, going to 2016, they have a pretty good argument they can, you know, muster, they can... Yeah, you know, especially since most of the public thinks Washington's dysfunctional and broken, why would they trust them to try to make this inequality better? And do you think Hillary overcomes kind of, you know, all the money she's made? I mean, does that really... I think that's hard for her. I think that's hard. I mean, as I, as I said, I don't, I don't think that Hillary has the advantage. I think it is very real that this is going to be a contested election. It's going to be a competitive election. Mm -hmm. And while we can look at the Republican candidates and see them as not necessarily that strong, the reality is, it, is that until somebody becomes the nominee, they're never perceived as strong. Right. And so the only reason why Hillary is already thought strong it's because she's essentially already the nominee. Political power is incredibly, um, you know, seductive. Right. And the reality is whoever can own it um, will do oftentimes whatever it takes to capture it. And I don't think we should forget that. Yeah, I you know. I, I think that that's the way that power drives it. I think it's not just money. I mean, a lot of times people will put money because I think it's easier to measure. Right. But, but I think power is much more, you know, like you say, seductive or has kind of much more um, kind of difficult to discern control. Just one last thing on your your book. I mean, there was a note that said uh, in one of the recommendations or one of the praises of your book, it said it was written kind of like for academics, but. I read it and I thought, you know, any person that's like kind of like a political junkie or just in elections can really get a lot out of this book. So, um, Jockeying for American Presidency, it's an excellent book. Um, it came out like, what, three, four years ago? Yeah, 2010. 2010. And you're working on a new book, you said? What's yeah. What's the, the gist of the new book? Uh, the, the new book's really about um, how this time that we're in right now, which is what I'm calling the Global Age, yeah. uh, replicates a lot of what happened in the Gilded Age. When did the Global Age begin? So post 2008? According or to me, uh, 1992. Because? Um, because really, the it's post fall of the wall, right. um, the Berlin Wall. Which, and so it's post the fall of the wall, and it's just on the precipice of essentially the internet um, being created in the World Wide Web. So when you look at what's going on, 92 was a really, really important election because we're kind of, you know, Bill Clinton was the first uh, baby boomer elected. Right. Um, all of this becomes this huge kind of political thing, but 
I'm looking at it much more of what happens in the economy. Okay. So if you go back to the Gilded Age, it's the Industrial Revolution, which is really driving the restlessness around the politics. And I would argue that if you look in, in our time, really starting in 1992, um, it's the restlessness about this global, you know, technologically driven yeah. economy yeah. that is driving the uncertainty and the restlessness in our politics. Um, so I'm, this book essentially compares the two periods and um, draws a lot of conclusions about how they are in some ways mirror images of one another. One of the things I essentially argue is that if you look at how the Gilded Age led to progressivism, then I actually am going to argue that this global age is probably going to lead to a, a revival of federalism. I guess wrapping up here, you are the director of the political management program here at George Washington University. That's true. You've been here for a couple of years. Yep. Um, it's growing, right? It's a growing it is. program. It is. And, uh, but how does that compare in terms of uh, visually um, to, you taught at the Channel Islands as well, right? Cal State Channel Islands, yeah. Is that probably about the best place to teach in the country? Well, people think that it's on the Channel Islands. Oh, it's not, it's not on the Channel, Channel Islands. Islands. Okay. No, it's actually in Camarillo, um, which looks out on the Channel Islands. Oh. You would know where that location is because if ever you watched the television series MASH, they filmed the opening sequence in the hillsides um, really? above it. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, it's been great speaking with you, and um, hope, your listener, hope our listeners enjoyed. So, thank you. Mark, thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's the show. Uh, that was Laura Brown, uh, Director of Political Management at George Washington University. And uh, if you like the show, uh, be sure to follow it on SoundCloud. Uh, you can follow me also on Twitter. It's uh, the the Mark cast. Uh, you can also shoot me an email at uh, email.markcast at gmail.com. And that's Markcast spelled M-A-R-C-A-S-T. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.